bring us closer to you through prayer and the reading of your word. And may our weary minds find rest and encouragement there in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Katie Smith from our five o'clock congregation is now going to come and read the Bible for us. Thanks, Katie. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's really great to be in the building, even though no one's here, but I can feel that you're all at home. So we'll be reading from John uh, chapter 13, verses 36 to chapter 14, verse 9. And I'll just give you a couple of seconds to find that. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Jesus asked, sorry, Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you, may, you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you, know, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Peter said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Let me welcome our guest speaker for the second week of this series, The Jesus I Never Knew. And his name is Dr. John Dixon. John is both an Anglican minister, he is an author, writer, speaker, academic, and he's written numerous books on particularly the topic of history as it intersects with the Christian faith, as well as the person of Jesus and the scriptures. And one of his books is, of the many he's written, uh, The Doubter's Guide to Jesus. And so he's very well learned, uh, but also he's personally a follower of the Lord Jesus and uh, in your homes, uh, why don't you welcome John along to speak to us today. Thank you, John. Well, uh, thank you, Bruce. Uh, it's always a privilege to be here. Uh, th this has become a happy place uh, for me, uh, Sydney Anglican, but also manly. Um, and I, I do hope that uh, this talk throws up a lot of questions. And uh, so I do look forward to the time together uh, to talk about that. And my first experience of uh, church in America years ago um, was face-to-face uh, -face with the all-American TV evangelist. Um, I I'd seen the sort of skits that you can put on about the TV evangelist, but nothing prepares you for the real thing. This guy had slick back hair, uh, an Armani suit, I think, and a beautiful southern drawl. And he was preaching a message uh, this day that God is a God of prosperity. 
I was a struggling musician at the time, and so I was pretty interested, actually. And, and he had a special deal going for us. Uh, he had what looked to me like a tea towel, but he called it a prayer cloth. He'd prayed over this cloth, many of these cloths, and he said that he would send it to you. And uh, the thing was, you could put it in your pantry, you'd always have the food that you need, put it in your garage, you'd end up with the cars that you need, put it in your house, and you'd end up with the house of your dreams. And uh, he said, I kid you not, um, this is free of charge with every $1,000 donation to the church. And um, yeah, people obviously bought it. And, and, he, and, he, and he proved that the magic worked by showing us a little documentary of his own car collection and home, which were many and massive. And... He was convinced God is a God of prosperity, and he had the prosperous life to prove it. But contrast that uh, impression of God with one of a woman I met just two weeks after being in America in a little country town, Cooler, in New South Wales, in the pub. The local church had asked me to give a talk in the pub about the love of God, and so I did. And it seemed to be going pretty well until I heard a woman at the very back yell out mid-talk, how can you say God loves us when he takes people from our lives? I um, sort of thanked her for her comment and moved on and I saw this silhouetted woman get up and walk straight to the front and sit down right in front of stage and just stare me down for the rest of the talk. Afterwards, I couldn't avoid her and I sat down. She was actually lovely, but she had just recently lost uh, close family members in a terrible uh, train uh, car collision. And she said, look, God is punishing me. She believed in God, but she thought that God was punishing her. Uh, She had left her husband for another man. She'd recently left that man for another man. And now she interpreted these events God was an ogre, a judge, a tyrant. And she had the broken life to prove it. So two completely contradictory images of God. The God of prosperity, the God who was the punisher. Firmly believed, uh, based on life experience. Who's right? And I'm sure today, maybe not in such dramatic terms, but... I'm sure today people tuning in have similar images of God. It's possible that some of you have had you know, fantastic lives and you're doing great right now and we project that onto God, all our happy thoughts. And then I'm sure there are some who are really struggling. Job losses, financial problems, mental health issues, and so on. And we project that onto God. If there's a God... He's not pleasant. It raises the possibility you often hear that God in the end really is just a projection of our own preferences, of our own psychology. I mean, that was certainly Sigmund Freud's argument that God is a projection of our infantile longings. We want a great big daddy in the sky and we project that and invent God. He sounded very sophisticated when he said it, but it's a very old idea. It goes back even before Socrates to the great uh, philosopher Xenophanes who said God must exist. He was a rational philosopher. He thought God existed. But all claims to know the nature of the divine are cultural projections, he said. So the question is, how can we know what God is like? 
How can we avoid simply projecting our life experiences, our emotions, our psychology? Um, it's a question put to Jesus by those uh, closest uh, to him. And Jesus' reply in this passage Katie just read us um, offers not just a new answer to the question, a new kind of answer to the question. Um, it's Christ's final week. And he tells his disciples after maybe three years of teaching and healing and demonstrating his authority that he's going away. He puts it plainly, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer and you'll look for me uh, just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. Uh, this must have put the disciples in a bit of a panic. Um, they'd had this amazing time with Jesus and now he says, I'm going. And, and I often think if you had been with Jesus and you'd been saving up questions to ask him because you just were a little bit embarrassed in front of the other apostles to ask your question, this is the night you would actually you know, put it on the line and ask your question of Jesus. And that's exactly what happens in our, in our scene just read to us. Uh, one by one, the disciples ask their questions. First Peter, then Thomas, then Philip. And there's this increasing intensity to their questions. The questions get more pointed and Jesus replies get more profound Peter goes first Peter often went first and when you read the gospels it's his personality shines through he's always going first and sometimes putting his foot in his mouth but Simon Peter asked him Lord where are you going pretty good question Jesus replied where I'm going you cannot follow now but you will follow later Peter asked Lord why can't I follow you now I'll lay down my life for you he's confident wherever it is Jesus is going he can handle it and maybe Jesus is going to Jerusalem and start a war with the Romans there are a lot of people in Peter's day who hoped for that and Peter thinks I can handle it wherever it is I'm there and Jesus immediately says, actually, no, you're going to deny me. You have this great confidence, Peter, but you are going to deny me. And he says, truly, I tell you before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And all four Gospels record Peter's denial of Jesus. It's a great sign of truth-telling, actually, that the, the leader of the apostles was a failure. But more striking than Peter's failure is Jesus' reassurance in the very next line that despite Peter's failure, there's a place for him. There's a home for him. These are the very next lines. Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's incredible because he just said to Peter, you're going to disown me. And the next line is, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not, were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Um, such grace. At the, at the very moment uh, Jesus says Peter's going to deny him, 
Jesus is nonetheless reassuring him that there's a place even for the failures. And in fact, all the apostles uh, uh, flee and in a sense deny Jesus. And he says, nonetheless, I go to, to prepare a place for you, an eternal home. And, and, and I, I almost feel like saying, if I'm not able to communicate anything else to you today, uh, please let me underline this. Despite our failings, Christ offers welcome, grace. Thomas pipes up. He's not satisfied with what he's heard so far. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? He wants to know the way to this father's home, the way to this father. And Jesus' reply is enigmatic, to say the least, actually. I often feel that Christians who are so used to what Jesus says next miss how bizarre it must have been. Um, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas says, what's the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. Now, just to um, illustrate how bizarre this is, you know, imagine you asked me, John, what is the way to the little country town of Kula? And I said, I am the way to Kula. You'd pause and go, what? How can you be the way? And the same is true here. How can Jesus be the way to the Father? Uh, Jesus is claiming not just to um, point the way to the Father, not just um, teach the truth about God, not just um, offer the life of God. Jesus claims to be those things to be the way, to be the truth, to be the life. He embodies the way, the truth, and the life of God. And this is one of those moments um, that are uncomfortable, uh, especially for people who are used to only thinking of Jesus as a good teacher. You know, he, he said, love your enemies, and he said also the lovely things. And then you come across a statement like this, and you think, oh my goodness, was he really a good teacher? The good teacher didn't just teach about love, he actually said extraordinary things like this, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And then it gets worse, or better, depending on your perspective. Uh, Philip chimes in with the most dramatic of the requests. He doesn't want to just know the way to God. He asks to see God. Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. You can almost hear the desperation in his tone. That's all I want to know. I want to, I want to see the Father. I want to see God. Now, I have no idea what Philip was expecting Jesus to do at that point. He, he was a Jew, so he knew you couldn't actually see God. God was eternal and so on. I'm pretty sure he didn't expect the reply that he, that he got. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
I honestly regard this as the most extraordinary statement in all sacred literature. You won't find anything like this anywhere in the Hindu scriptures, the Buddhist scriptures, the Islamic scriptures. In Christ alone, it is said, you can see God personally in the flesh in Jesus Christ. Jesus identifies himself as God. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And people sometimes get around this, or try to anyway, by saying, oh, no, 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 Jesus never really thought of himself as God. That was a later invention. You know, the original Jesus, he was just a beautiful teacher, maybe a healer, and those naughty Christians, decades or centuries later, invented the idea of him being God. The most popular uh, rendition of this story comes from Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. You may remember that. 80 million copies of that book were sold. Uh, so I'm guaranteed some of you have, have read it. And in the book, he claims that it was Emperor Constantine, 300 years after Jesus, who elevated Jesus from mere teacher to divine status. He called a council of Nicaea and convinced everyone now to start calling Jesus God. It's a cool story. It's also nuts. Because we have evidence that predates Constantine by centuries. I mean, a century before Emperor Constantine, we have an inscription on the ground in Israel declaring Jesus to be God in the earliest church yet found. There, there's the inscription. And a century before this even, we have a letter from the Roman governor uh, Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Trajan, both of them non-Christians, in which Pliny says this about the Christians. It was all the more necessary to extract the truth about Christianity by torture from two slave women whom they called deaconesses. The sum total of their guilt or error <clears throat> amounted to no more than this. They met regularly before dawn on a determined day and sang antiphonally, in turns, a hymn to Christ as God. A pagan governor saying, the only thing I can work out about the Christians is they sing these hymns to Christ as God. This is 200 years before Constantine. And the cool thing is, we know the kinds of um, hymns Christians sang to Christ as God because a couple of them are in our New Testament. From the middle of the first century, here's Philippians 2. I know it doesn't look like a hymn, but in the original Greek, it clearly is. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. I'm going to reflect on this uh, passage uh, next week um, and talk about the idea of Christ as servant, but, but it starts with Jesus being in very nature God. And of course, the earliest Christians didn't make this up. They got it from Jesus himself. I mean, it, it was clearly Jesus who went around Galilee and Judea handing out forgiveness of sins like it was his to give. And all of his critics knew who can forgive sins but God alone. And yet here is Jesus claiming to be able to do just that. And um, last week, um, if you caught uh, that message, we explored the way Jesus presented himself as the true temple. The point of the temple was, it was the focal point of God's presence on earth. And Jesus said, 
He is that temple. So a passage like our one today is really just making explicit what is implicit throughout the entire biography of Jesus. If you have seen me, he said, you have seen God. Let me try and uh, illustrate the significance of this uh, by asking you, like right now, to try imagine what my father looked like. Just, you know, I guess you're going to look at me and go, okay, we can, we can work that out. Try and picture him maybe at about 40 years of age. I, I lost him when I was nine. And if I got you to sketch your speculation of my dad, I bet some of your sketches would be lovely, works of art, intelligent guesses. But in the end, a beautiful, intelligent guess is still a guess is still not the real thing. But I can solve it by showing you a photo of Dad. Here he is, shortly before he died. That's the photo. That's the revelation to end the speculation. That's really what my dad looked like. And it doesn't matter how good the guesstimations, the speculations you offered were, this resolves the dilemma entirely. And of course, my point is, Jesus is to God what that photo is to my dad. Anyone who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen God the Father through his uh, life, teachings, healings, death, resurrection. We get front row seats to the divine. Now, I suppose there's a challenge here, um, for some of us anyway, because if this is true, it means we are not at liberty to invent our picture of God. It certainly means the TV evangelist is not at liberty to project his own greed onto God. Because if looking at Jesus is seeing God, That is discredited. But it also means for us, we can't cherry pick. And most Australians, according to the surveys, do believe in some kind of God or universal spirit behind the universe. But the thing is, how many of us just pick and choose? I want a little bit of that version of God, a little bit of that. I want it to be a little bit more like me, at least approving of me. And we cherry pick. But if God has made himself known in Jesus, that kind of cherry picking, that projection is really just flattering myself, allowing myself to make up God. It's a challenge. On the other hand, I think it's also a comfort, uh, especially for people like the woman I met in the pub in Kula, who have uh, lost sight of the love of God, lost belief in the love of God, can't quite bring themselves to believe God loves me. I love that in this very passage where Jesus makes explicit that he embodies God, he also extends wonderful grace, favor, forgiveness to Peter and the other apostles who are failures. At the very point he says, you know what, you're going to deny me. 
He also says, don't let your hearts be troubled. There's a place in my eternal home for you. Grace. And of course, the very next day, after this conversation took place, Jesus would end up on a cross, dying for all our failures and rising again so that we might all have a home with God. And whatever else our sorrows mean, they can't mean God doesn't love us. The cross is the photo of God. And all of this has come home to me pretty powerfully in recent days. Um, I've told you before about the group of mates that all became Christians together when we were 15. And my best mate, Ben, uh, who I've known for 40 plus years, uh, two years ago, almost to the day actually, got a terrible cancer diagnosis. They stopped treatment in January this year and said there's nothing more they can do. Uh, the government very kindly repatriated him from London uh, back to Sydney where for the last uh, five or six months he's uh, lived with, with us in my home. There he is. Uh, receiving palliative care. And it, it has been incredible to watch my best knockabout mate from Mossman days face death with such clarity about who God is in Jesus and such confidence in the welcome that he was about to experience. He uh, died last month uh, right here in this room. Our, our lounge room. Uh, the last week was full of singing hymns, his favorite hymns and his favorite Bible readings, including this one. He passed away very peacefully with wonderful clarity. But just a few weeks before he died, extraordinarily, we were able to launch his new book. And uh, he'd written this book over the last two years and we put on a wonderful event at St. Andrews Roseville. And I got to interview him. Uh, the book is called Seven Reasons to Reconsider Christianity. And so I asked him the obvious question. And I want to leave you with his reply to one of my questions. Uh, so Ben, uh, just one, one last question. Um, I guess the, the obvious question to put to you faced with what you face is has what you're going through, particularly in these you know, really hard days, caused you to reconsider Christianity yourself? Have I reconsidered Christianity for myself? Um, yes and no. Um, first of all, no, I've had such a strong faith growing up. You and I have been um, tremendously privileged to be under the teaching of Glenn Davies and many others, Moore College, um, uh, Glen Glenda Weldon, this church, churches associated with it, that um, it's, it's to me of no surprise to you that 
I haven't had to reconsider my faith. It's, a, it's blindingly obvious to me. It's so true. It's so factual. It's so um, feasible. Um, and like Glenn said at the beginning, I can't understand why um, a biologist like David Attenborough can't have his mind, biological mind switched on to a theological one. I, I can't get it. But having said that, <clears throat> um, I'm, it's also caused me to rethink, to reconsider, because you are facing eternity. You're looking at it squarely in the eye, and you must reassess yourself. Um, and I think everyone who is in my position does that, at least at some stage, even on their deathbed. And it's caused me to do that. But I'm glad to say it hasn't bothered me absolutely one inch. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thank you. say there is a challenge here there's a challenge here God has made himself known in Jesus we are not at liberty to cherry pick our vision of God and there is comfort here God has shown us his heart his willingness to serve us to die for us to welcome us into his eternal home God bless Lord, will you please, in your mercy, give us all clarity about your grace in Jesus Christ, that we might know you and trust you, come what may. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just take a breath, John. I know that was very personal, and uh, thank you for sharing. Such a powerful story, and it really brings home the reality of what we're talking about today, that God has made himself known. And so I just want to say thank you, and if you're there listening, thinking, is God real, we just want to encourage you to open up the page of the Gospels and read, because you can find confidence, with confidence, the God who has visited this world. Now, we're going to just transition from that thought... Uh, to open up question and answer and the number is there on the screen if you've got any questions uh, do text them in as I said we might not be able to get through them all uh, we will try and respond during the week if we don't get to yours uh, but if I can do a transition if we've got a question that's coming up I'm just looking to the tech guys we've got one here um, here's a question that's come in how confident can we be that Jesus made the claims that he did in the gospels and so we've read these claims can we actually be confident that they're true, that Jesus actually said them? Yeah, uh, we really can. I mean, it, just historically, it's overwhelmingly the case that our earliest sources and multiple sources that haven't been copied from one another all make this same claim in different ways. 
So the opening of Mark's gospel uh, uses an Old Testament passage about God and applies it to Jesus, as you pointed out some months ago. Um, and, and, and then in Mark and Luke, he's handing out forgiveness of sins like it's his to give. Uh, and, and then in John, you've got um, all sorts of ways in which Jesus did it. You've got in Paul's letters, the same claim that Jesus is God. So it gets to the point where when so many different sources not copied from one another, so early to the events themselves, all make the same claim. If you're unwilling to say, well, Jesus must have made the claim, it's, it's arbitrary skepticism now. Because if this were invented, it were invented immediately. So why by not numerous by Jesus people. himself, by numerous people at the same time? So uh, it, just, it just becomes, um, to my mind, arbitrary skepticism to resist the conclusion that Jesus really claimed this and we just have to deal with it. You know, he either was crazy or something else. Okay, which we believe... He was actually God. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Uh, next question. Why is mainstream Jewish thought not convinced by uh, the argument that Jesus is the Messiah? Who are they waiting for? Um, well, within Orthodox Judaism today, uh, they are waiting for uh, an earthly ruler who will sort of bring the, the nations into submission, establishing Israel as the superpower. Okay. So it's like an international king they're waiting for. Um, and Jesus looked more like a servant, more like a loser. Yeah? Um, and those Jews uh, that didn't believe he rose again just thought the whole thing was rubbish. But the thing we've got to remember is all the first Christians, including all the writers of the New Testament, were Jews who were convinced that he was the Messiah, that, that the Messiah turned out to be God himself in the flesh. Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask one more question. Um, People listening today who would say, look, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian or not, but I'd like to find out more. I've got a curiosity, a hunch that this could be real. What would you say to them in terms of next steps? Uh, Well, you mentioned it a moment ago. um, Read a gospel. All four of them. All four of them. These gospels have done amazing things in the history of the world. You encountered the person of Jesus in these gospels. So that's probably the best thing you could do. Uh, Keep on tuning in to St. Matt's Manley. Um, Are you guys running... Life of Jesus or Alpha or anything like that? In the Not future? at the moment. Well, okay. we will be in the future. Well, sometime in the future, sign up for one of those. But, I mean, if you find yourself, like today, believing, why don't you just say that to God? I, I trust you, God. I trust that you've made yourself known. I trust that you welcome me because of Jesus. And, I mean, that's a beautiful thing to do, like, right now. You don't, don't have to wait for anything. Fantastic. Uh, last question. Ben wrote that very significant book. Uh, I wrote down the title, Seven Reasons to Consider Christianity. Where can you get it? I'm sure there'd be people who think, I'd like to get that book. Um, I'd like to get the book. Is it possible to get it or is it sold out? Uh, It did sell out in Australia um, because there's a lot of good promotion about it. Um, But um, I have 100 copies. Um, uh, As in, you could go to Undeceptions, the Undeceptions website, undeceptions.com. And we've got 100 copies left in Australia. We're trying to get more. But you could also get it from Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, we will try and get some in here at St. Matt's. Uh, if you'd like to get a copy, I'm sure there'll be people who'd like to read it. But uh, thank you, John. Thanks. It's been wonderful. Thanks. Um,
Now, let me just encourage you, if you are curious, if you've got that sense of, I'd like to find out more, do what John has said. It's what I often say to people. Just pick up one of the Gospels, pick up all four and read it for yourself. That's actually where my journey began is I read through Mark's Gospel five times. And you will find out for yourself in a way that only you can discover that this Jesus who is written about is actually real and he's speaking to us and he is God.